Well, we continue with our series in 1 John. And one of the things we're discovering is that 1 John is quite a bit different from some of the other letters that we find in the New Testament. Uh, it's different from the way Paul writes, uh, but it's very consistent with the way John writes. And so as we turn to this letter, what we find actually is more of a poetic sermon that John is passionately writing to the church. And even though it doesn't have a lot of structure to it, it does have two main sections. And I thought this might be interesting to share. And hopefully as you read through the short letter, uh, you'll watch for this and discover it for yourself. The first section uses really a key word for John. And it's a key word in his gospel. It's a key word in this letter. The word is light. And that first section really uh, chapters one to the beginning of chapter three, light is what the section is all about. And then the second section, about uh, 3 and verse 15 on uh, through to the end of, of chapter 5, is another key word that John really loves, and that is the word love. He is known as the apostle of love, of love the beloved of Christ. And so we find those two sections uh, playing off of one another in this letter, light and then love. And so in those two sections, we have two amazing statements about God. And this is one of John's great gifts to the church because we rarely get definitive statements about God like this. In the first section, what does John say? God is light. There's a very definitive statement for us about God. So if you're wondering, what's God like? John says God is light. And that word light refers to holiness, and it refers to truth, it refers to righteousness, but it also brings us back to the creation. And John often does this. He does this in his gospel. He does it again in the letter. And he reminds us of the connection with God and the connection of Jesus with the creation of the universe. God is light. And so that's really important. The second statement is probably better known and it comes in the second half of the letter. And that is, God is love. And that's such a, a definitive statement about God too. So if you're uncertain about what God is like, hold on to those two statements or just look to Jesus and we find out what God is truly like because he is the image of the invisible God and he is the light that comes into the world and he is love incarnate. And so we find that. So what a beautiful thing. We find the transcendence of God. God is light. And we find the imminence or the closeness of God, God is love. And so that's part of this poetic sermon that uh, John sends to the church. Well, he's very passionate in this sermon, and he's passionate because he is concerned about the church. Probably uh, a group of house churches in and around Ephesus or that area, that's the uh, area that John was most intimately connected with. And so he's very passionate about writing this letter because the church is in danger. And the danger, as we've mentioned the last two weeks, is from within. It's actually from a group of teachers who are false teachers, according to John, who is a disciple of Jesus. And so he was right next to the truth. He touched the truth. And so he's warning the church to stay true to the truth about Jesus and not follow these false teachers. False teachers, uh, sometimes called Gnostics, it's a very broad term for them. Uh, they were teaching some things that were causing the church to divide. They were breaking up the koinonia, the shared experience, the shared fellowship 
of the church. And so they were breaking this up and John wanted to keep the church united and on track. Some of these uh, false teachings that they were making, they made a lot of different claims. And uh, here's some of them. False teachers, they claimed to be in the light, but John says they were actually walking in darkness. They also claimed to be without sin, but John says they were actually deceiving themselves. They claimed to have special knowledge of God, but John says they were not willing to follow God's commands. And then, and this is what we're going to look at today, they claimed to love God, and yet they hated their brother. And that's really the focus of what we want to look at today. So John is saying that their actions, these false teachers, their actions prove that they are not in koinonia. They're not in fellowship with God or the church. Their actions prove that they have broken fellowship with God's people. And that's what Paul wants to point out. So today we need to talk about the danger of hating your brother or sister in Christ. Uh, John, even though he has a very poetic way of writing, it's a very serious way of writing. Even though he's very tender, he talks about beloved or dear children. He also gets to the point, and the point is sometimes hard to bear. Easy to understand, perhaps, but hard to put into practice. And so John really sticks it to us with this one, this one the danger of hating our brother and sister in Christ. John says in the text, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. That's as plain and simple and as direct as it gets. John, just, he doesn't just mention it in this passage. He actually doubles down uh, as we turn over to chapter three. He says that if you hate your brother or sister in Christ, you're as bad as Cain. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Old Testament story, the first murder. Uh, Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. He hated his brother and killed him. Well, John says that anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Wow. Well, if you thought that was it, you're wrong. John continues. He goes right into chapter four with this theme. And in chapter four, he says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So if we have hatred in our heart toward our brother and sister in Christ, John says, you're walking in darkness, you're a liar, and you're a murderer. Wow, is that a little bit blunt? It seems a little harsh to me. Uh, this John, the disciple of love, is really striking out. So it must be really important. And that's why we want to pay some attention to this. John actually says, as we go through this uh, passage, he says, you shouldn't be surprised at this. This is not a new saying, and yet it is kind of new to us. It's not a new saying in the sense that it's very old. We find this in the old covenant as well. This wasn't just suddenly introduced by Jesus. This is part of the trajectory of God's character through all time. And we find that in Leviticus chapter 19, reading verses 16 and 18, says this, Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. 
Confront people directly so you not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this isn't just a New Testament principle. This is a principle that comes from the very character of God and was meant to be embodied in his people that we do not harbor, do not nurse hatred in our heart toward a relative. And in this case, John is saying our relative in Christ, a fellow believer. So it's old. And yet, as John points out, it's kind of made new again in Christ. Whatever is old is new again. And we find that as we turn to Matthew 5 and verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. (laughs) Wow, what's going on here? Well, Jesus and even the Old Testament law, it wasn't so concerned about the external things really in the end. It was concerned about what was going on in our hearts. It's concerned about our attitudes, concerned about our inner motivations, and that's what these passages are getting at. So how do we understand this? How do we wrestle with this? Because really, aren't we then all guilty of murder? I mean, if, if we apply this correctly, and if we just apply it literally as we read it, there's times that I have been angry at people. I think there's times that I've called people an idiot. I think there's times when I've even nursed a sense of hatred towards someone else. And I think if we're honest, we all fall in that category. So does that mean that we've lost our eternal salvation? Does that mean that we can no longer be called the children of God? How do we understand this? Well, I think an absolute key to understanding this is understanding the concept that we find in John, both in his gospel and in this letter, the concept of abiding. It's another word for remaining in. We all sin, says John. He makes that very clear. We all stumble. We are not actually perfect. So that's not what John is going for here. But here's his point. When we remain in darkness, when we abide in darkness, or when we remain in our sin without repentance, then we prove that we are not walking in the light and we're not in fellowship with God. When we're so stubborn in our sin and we're so stubborn in our hate, then we are showing that we are no longer in fellowship with God. And that's an important part that uh, John is giving to us. Kenneth Woost, you might not know that name. He was a a Greek scholar and he uh, interprets or translates uh, the passage in chapter three that I read for you. And he translates it this way. Everyone who habitually is hating his brother is a manslayer. That's an important distinction because it captures the tense of the Greek in there. The tense is present and ongoing. So everyone who is habitually hating his brother is a manslayer. We're talking about habitual hatred. We're talking about festering hatred. We're talking about unchecked and unrestrained and unchallenged hatred. When we have that going ongoing in our heart, then we are as guilty of murder and we are not in fellowship with God's people or with God himself.
And so I think, if we're honest, we know how destructive this kind of hatred is. We know how destructive, habitual, festering, unrestrained, unchecked, unchallenged hatred is. Destructive to our society, we see it all around, don't we? Have you watched the news lately? Have you seen what's going on around the world? But it's even closer to home. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our own heart. But just to be really crystal clear about the destructive nature of this kind of hatred, I want to just give us three destructive outcomes of habitual festering hatred when we nurse it in our hearts. The first destructive outcome is this. Hate fuels more hate. Do you find that? Hate fuels more hate. I uh, was reading a, a sermon from Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, maybe we'll put it up on, on the screen or I'll link to it in some, some way and you can read it because it's a fascinating and just a formidable sermon. Uh, but in it, he shares a story of traveling down the road at night with his brother. And as he's traveling down the road, um, the cars coming toward them are not very courteous. And most of the cars don't dim their headlights. So it's just blinding to Martin Luther King Jr. and his brother as they drive down the road. Well, his brother is getting just furious about this. He's getting so angry about it. And he finally turns and says, look, the next car that comes down that doesn't dim their headlights, I'm going to put my high beams on full blast. And so we blind them too. And Martin Luther King says, don't do that. Because if you do that, we'll both go blind and, blind and end up in destruction as we crash into one another. And this was the, the thing he said to his brother. Somebody has got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody has got to have some sense on this highway. It, one person at least needs to have some sense, sense enough to turn down their high beams. Because what happens? Hate fuels hate. When someone hits us and we hit them back, what are they going to do? They're going to hit us again. And we find that going on in our society, but also in our lives. We just have to look at our Facebook comments, don't we? <laughs> as we go to Facebook comments, and as soon as someone puts out uh, a bit of hate, it's followed by hate. And we find that just escalates. And so we need people who have some sense, who de-escalate these situations, because that's a destructive outcome of hate. That's why John wants to take this so seriously. Hate fuels more hate. Second, destructive outcome of hate. Hate warps the hater. Hate warps the hater. It, it warps our personality. It, it affects not only our words, but it affects our heart. It affects our, our sense of well-being. It even affects our bodies when we hate so much, when we have this festering hate within us. There are a number of uh, very popular sayings that you can find, and I'm sure you'll have heard of many of these. They're so popular, in fact, that we don't always know who the original author is. So I'm just going to put them out there uh, because you've heard them before, I'm sure. But they help us to get an idea of how hate warps the hater. One of the uh, current and very popular analogies is saying that uh, hating someone and festering and fostering hate in your own heart towards someone else is like picking up a really hot coal with the intent of throwing it at your opponent but then realizing that you've just burned your own hand. That's what hate does to us. Or another one, it's like, it's like letting someone live rent-free in your mind. 
You ever get to that point where you're just feeling so angry at the other person that they consume your thoughts, they keep you up awake at night, and it's unhealthy? Or another one, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I think that's a very popular one, isn't it? But that's what hate does when we foster hate in our lives. It's like drinking poison, because it is, but expecting the other person to be harmed. Or I love this image, and it's a little bit graphic, but uh, hating someone else and fostering hate in our heart is like picking up a fresh piece of dung to throw at our opponent, but realizing that we've just made ourselves stinky. That's what it does. That's what hate does. And all of those analogies show just the sense of how hate can warp the hater. But the third thing, and this is the thing that's really close to the passage, is this. Hate robs us of fellowship. And that's really John's point, because he wants the church to experience fellowship together, but he wants the church to have the joy of unbroken fellowship with God the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. And when we foster hate in our hearts, we break the fellowship with one another and we break fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what John wants us to watch out for. Hate breaks the koinonia. It breaks that shared common experience that we have together and it breaks our communion with God. It destroys our confident faith. We can't have that sense of confidence in God. Not that God has done anything different. Not that God has moved in any way. But we lose our sense of confident faith when we harbor hatred in our hearts. John says it like this. When we walk in hatred toward our brothers, we end up walking in the darkness and we stumble around. We stumble around. We can't walk fully in the light when we have hatred toward our brother and sister in Christ. Well, what exactly does it mean to hate? What is John talking about here? I mean, we could define that in lots of ways. We could pull lots of different examples of what it looks like to actually hate someone and act on that. But what is John talking about? Well, I think he's very clear as we turn into John 3 and verse, 1 John 3 and verse 16 and 17. John wants to point out that not loving is hatred, and hatred is murder. Not loving is hatred. Listen to what he says. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? That's John's question. How can God's love be in that person when he sees his brother or sister in need? He's doing well, but he shows no compassion for their physical or material needs. Here's what I suspect was happening. Given the, uh, the focus of the Gnostics on the spiritual as opposed to the material realm, I would suspect that the Gnostic teachers did not show compassion to those who were facing physical or material challenges. And there might have been a number of reasons to do that or why they did that. But I think they were neglecting the poor among them. And that always, always triggers a response from God, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it was with Jesus in the New Testament. And it was so important for these communities of faith, these small Christian churches to care for one another. A lot of them would have been Jewish background. 
And as they began to follow Jesus, they would have been put out of the synagogue. The synagogue wasn't just a place of worship. It was the whole social connection. It was their social safety net as well. And so if they were out of that and they ran into trouble, they were on their own. It was a challenging time. So it was so important for the church to care for their own and to care for one another. And so if these teachers are coming in and saying, ignore the body, the body is evil, just focus on the spiritual, then they don't care about the practical, physical, material needs of the people in the body. And John is saying, how can you turn a blind eye to your brother and your sister who's in need and still you call yourself a child of God? That's the challenge. And so hate in this sense and in this context for John is not loving, is not showing compassion to a brother or sister in need. You know, as it comes down to it, I believe that we as the church have been given the greatest message in the world. We've been given the message and we've been shown because of the death of Jesus that God is love and that we should love one another. What a great message. I I really do believe that it has the power to transform our lives, our communities, and even our world. And we see that in many examples in the scripture. Uh, Think back to the story of Joseph, just to name one from the Old Testament. Joseph, who was sold into slavery and then eventually put into prison. But because he responded in love and not out of hate, he was promoted to the highest position in the realm. And then when his brothers came, because he, he responded to them in love and not in hate, the whole nation was saved. The whole redemptive purposes of God were able to continue because Joseph responded in love. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross. And as he responded in love, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he responded that way, in love instead of in hate, even the soldier at the foot of the cross came to say, surely this man is the son of God. Or when we think in the New Testament of Paul and Silas, uh, two pastors who were thrown into jail for breaking local customs, these two pastors, what did they do? Did they rail against their captors? Did they spew hate on their Facebook page? No, instead, there was a response of love instead of hate. And that response caused the jailer to come to them and say, what must I do to be saved? That's the transforming power of love. That's why John wants to steer us away from hate and wants us to abide, to remain in love instead. I believe that we will only experience a confident faith when we choose to remain in love. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message here of John. Well, I mentioned just briefly before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and that sermon. He delivered it at uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, on uh, the 17th of November in 1957. There, you can go ahead and look that up and read the whole sermon. Right at the end of that sermon, he just had a great statement, and I would like to read it as the conclusion to this sermon today. This is what he said. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe 
that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. What an enduring message comes right through the Old Testament, comes through John, comes through the current preachers today. Love your enemies, do not hate. Let's pray together. Father, these words in so many ways are easy to say, but very hard to put into practice. And yet we have the example, not only of your son, but of many others who have done just that. And so we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would search our hearts, that you would help us to abide in your love and not nurse hateful thoughts toward others within our hearts. So Father, we commit this whole time to you and ask that you would make us instruments of love and peace within your world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.